it's worthwhile saying as we begin before we go any further that Jesus is coming again. Amen. And I do love it when you say amen about these kinds of things. Not only does it help me to appreciate that there are people here who believe the same things as me. Don't worry if you don't. We're going to open up the Bible and hopefully we'll all get there in the end. But not only do you believe it, but maybe just maybe you're excited about these things. Is anybody excited about the return of Jesus Christ? Oh, good. There's even quite a few of us here who might be excited about these things. And last week, um, we had the privilege of considering the fact that we are heading home. And home for us is to be with the Lord. And the Bible encourages in this that um, if and when, uh, it's not really an if, but when we are absent from the body, uh, we will be present with the Lord, which the Bible says is far better. And um, these things, they become all the more apparent, don't they, as you journey through life, that these earthly tents... This is what the Bible talks about them. Paul told that to the Corinthians in these earthly tents. They are indeed passing away. And whether this becomes apparent early days within your life and it's a struggle that you contend with all the way through or whether you're granted great health but eventually they come to start getting a bit weary and worn, it becomes very apparent that these things are earthly tents. That's not to say that they're not made with some sense of glory and wonder. They are. God doesn't get them wrong. It wasn't accidental. It was design. But there is something better to come. And we see something of the truth of this, don't we, in the fact that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave. That's rather incredible, isn't it? He came into this world, conceived in human form, and yet not like any of the rest of us. And yet he grew in human form. There's an incredible humility and grace to that, wasn't there? And and grew through all of the stages of, of humanity, mankind, and grew... Um, the Bible says in wisdom and stature and favor before God and before men. And he grew up uh, wondrously, although the world didn't really understand it so well at the time. And he grew so that he might die for our sake. I don't know whether you've ever wondered why it wasn't that, Je- that Jesus didn't just rise spiritually and ascend spiritually. Well, there's an awful lot in this. Uh, but there's an incredible grace to us in the fact that he rose bodily. And that he ascended bodily to heaven. This is the teaching of, of, of the Bible. This is the teaching of the Christian faith and of every creed that's um, had any worth ever since. That Jesus ascended bodily. He took a human body, his human body, into heaven. And he's chosen to have it forevermore. That's rather incredible, isn't it? And the Bible teaches us that at the end of all things that we will be transformed in an instant, just in a moment. And we will be like him. And we'll have uh, bodies like unto his glorious body, which is a a real treat to think about, isn't it? And you might want to meditate upon that. I have no idea what these bodies are going to be like, but I always, I like to think upon some of the things that Jesus did in his resurrection body, but even while he was still on this earth, because God is going to make a new earth as well. He's promised to do that. And I like to think about what it'll be like when I'm kind of, you know, enjoying the new earth in my resurrection body. And I like to think that I'll be able to walk on water like Jesus. I like to think about these things, don't you? And I like to think about that I might be able to just kind of wander into rooms, even if they're locked. You're all thinking, don't wander into my room, Greg. Jesus said that he's going to go and prepare a room for me and I'm having a proper lock on that and you're not coming in. No, no, no. Uh, I'm sure you would welcome me for a nice brew because there will be tea in heaven. 
Um, but we, we thought a little bit about um, home and that sense of being with God. And uh, just a couple more uh, you know, uh, illustrations on that and a meditation by means of a poem before we continue into what we're going to consider tonight. Erin um, and I in our, um, in our lab space within our Transform community on Tuesday, we were blessed and privileged to be outnumbered by Kenyans. Uh, which I was joking with some uh, some Kenyans. Uh, they were the ones, and uh, and we were we were really blessed and privileged. And they were able to bring some insight into some of the imagery and the sense of the the longing and the preparedness for what it will be to be united with God. And we talked a little bit last week about um, a bride being prepared for the wedding. And of course, within the Western context, we have some sense of what that looks like because the preparations are fairly in-depth and detailed. I thought, until our Kenyan brothers and sisters were able to let us know that in fact, we're barely scratching the surface. Because in Kenya, and it may well be in other cultures as well, um, oftentimes, at least traditionally, the bride would be squirreled away for up to a month. A month! Being preened and pampered, no less. Does anyone wish they were Kenyan? Any ladies wish you were Kenyan? It doesn't work for the groom, Ronald, sorry. Um, you just have to just be, I don't know what you do. But uh, preened and pampered so that they would be just so for the day of the wedding. There are all sorts of other fantastical things that they get up to in preparation. But it gave a better sense, I think, of what it is to be prepared and how maybe we ought to be considering our preparations for the groom, Christ Jesus, is coming. And the wonder of the, the, the work is this, that the Holy Spirit is doing a work of sanctification in everybody who surrenders their life to him and indeed in his church and preparing us. And yet Christ Jesus invites us not to remain passive in this, but to join in the work of preparing, to prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ Jesus. One more All right. One more Kenyan illustration. And you should probably, Kenyans should probably let me know if I'm not getting these things right. I, I have heard Kenyans, what's the word, ululate from time to time. And, and maybe that should be the way you should let me know if I'm not getting it right. But, but uh, that, was, that was cheeky, I'm sorry. I know Margaret can do these things. But um, One of our number talked about what it is to travel it's a great distance isn't it but culturally quite a significant difference to come from somewhere like Kenya to the UK or it might be anywhere in Europe or the US or somewhere like that and how it is that these things are perceived um, initially and how it might be in Kenya you, you tell people that you're making these plans to relocate to the UK and of course, those, especially those who have never been to the UK, will look in wide-eyed wonder at the very thought of going to such a place as the United Kingdom. And they will talk at length about the flawless transportation system that is to be found in this wonderful land of the United Kingdom. And, uh, and all of the great things. And one of the things that was mentioned was how clean it is here because they will describe how it is that they've seen in representations of the, the UK or the US how it is that people will wear their shoes indoors and how they'll think nothing of doing this because we, we, just, we don't recognise all of these differences but in, in countries where, well, they see a lot more of the sun than here and things get a lot drier, there's a lot more dust 
and nobody would think about wearing their shoes inside. But here in the UK, we get to do this. And so people will look at these places and there's a sense that, that the UK or the US or wherever it might be is as it were like heaven. And I know you, you British people who have grown up here or, or those from the States or Canada or elsewhere, we take these things for granted, don't we? And, and of course, in our group on Tuesday, as they were talking about how people, they think of it as, as it were heaven, at least until they get here. Um, <laughs> of course, it's, it's much the same. Uh, lots of British people think about Canada or, or maybe Australia as though these places are like heaven. And, and everybody's got this sense of where is that little bit better? These glorious places around the world, wherever it might be. It's that sense of desire that might motivate somebody in the here and now to uproot, transport themselves thousands of miles across cultures and maybe retraining or studying or going through extra exams and processing. Uh, I was chatting with some of our international uh, folks before about the process of visa applications and leave to remain and all these things that you have to do just for the sake of being in a place that you long for. Christians, do we sometimes take the invitation to heaven for granted? Do we ever consider how much it has cost for our application to heaven to be granted? Permanent leave to remain. It's been stamped. It's in the Lamb's Book of Life. And you you don't have to pay anything, which is great because it costs a fortune, let me tell you, to get into a country. Isn't that right, Robin? I get a hallelujah there. But uh, it doesn't cost us anything in that fundamental sense. It cost Christ everything. Uh, I just want to read you a little poem. Uh, last week we considered uh, that, that repointing and recalibrating of our desires, hearing from C.S. Lewis in particular, that if we find within ourselves desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then we can only conclude that we were made for somewhere else. We're made for heaven made to be with our God and a, a, a gentleman a pastor and a, a writer Paul Tripp he offers this poetic exploration of that longing when he says I give painful evidence every day I experience it in predictable and unpredictable moments I guess I should know better but I am often caught off guard There is an insatiable longing inside of me, a thirst that never seems to be quenched. This deep hunger doesn't go away, no matter how busy I get or how hard I work to be distracted. I long for justice, love, hope, peace, perfection, satisfaction mercy, contentment, rest, harmony, joy and none of these longings ever gets fully satisfied and so in my quest for more I am faced with the incontrovertible daily evidence that this simply is not all there is and the sure truth that I was hardwired for another world for another world if you've got a bible with you you might want to open up to the book of revelation 
if time allows, we are going to jump back and forth a little bit around the scriptures um, tonight. But I want to read to you um, from chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. And our thought this evening is, knowing that we are hardwired for another world, longing for another country, meant for another kingdom, and we're seeking for that kingdom, praying for that kingdom, working and living for that kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven now, knowing that the fullness of it is yet to come. What is it going to take to journey that journey, travel that road? How might it unfold for these things to transpire? And here in chapter 6, we're going to read of the Lamb, which is Jesus, the one who we have seen is the, the worthy one, which is a, a cause for celebration and thanks, opening seven seals on a scroll, and what then unfolds because of that, chapter 6. Now, I, that is John, watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say, with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed him and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, 
and who can stand. After which, you'll see in your Bible, chapter 7 acts as an interlude uh, when we see some of the people of God uh, before the seventh seal is opened at the beginning of chapter 8 when there is silence in heaven. Uh, as well as these seven seals, there are seven trumpets and seven um, bowls. And these things, as you'll have seen, just as we read out chapter 6, it's pretty dramatic, isn't it? And I think if, if we have any kind of sensitivity, any heart for, not just for God, but heart for, for people in any sense, these things are troubling, are they not? Uh, we're just going to spend a moment or two um, considering these things um, just briefly and answer perhaps some of the questions we might have about the text before we consider more broadly the subject of trouble or of tribulation. I hesitate to use that word because we always think about just one thing biblically when we think about tribulation. I'm not sure that we should. And um, we'll continue onwards from there. Now, these seals are being opened and initially we have these four horsemen and then the other seals um, which had the attendant things with those. Now, with the first horseman, it was a white horse a crown was given to him, comes out conquering and to conquer. Now, white riders, white horses, you might, um, from other um, circumstances, start to think, well, white, speaking of purity, of holiness, is this speaking of Jesus? Well, actually, it seems highly unlikely uh, that it would be Jesus. Firstly, because all of the horsemen, four horsemen seem to be of a piece, and Jesus always is separate. Um, secondly, because a crown is given to him, as Jesus has his authority, it is not given to him. Um, he is, uh, rather, he is a king by his nature. Uh, thirdly, because the rider has a bow. Uh, and that um, symbolism is not one that is ever ascribed to Jesus. Actually, it's much more likely to be ascribed to um, other deities in the ancient world, someone like uh, Apollos, for instance. Um, and it, it rather would indicate something to do with pagan religion. Um, we have this first horseman, not Jesus, but given the, uh, the role of conquering and to conquer in the world, the second horseman, bright red, which symbolizes blood. And that is very obvious then as the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and given a great sword. The third um, is a black horse. Black is probably the most portentous color in Revelation, although here it seems pretty equivalent with the others. And the rider having this pair of scales weighing up um, wheat and barley. If you, there's no reason you would be familiar with these weights and measures and costs, but essentially what's being described here is famine, that people are paying a fortune for not very much. And that is the nature of the destruction and devastation that's being described here. There's an interesting point about not harming the oil and the wine. Um, 
there's a couple of things that that might be about. One might be that the, the famine doesn't seem to affect the, the rich and the wealthy so much as it affects the ordinary. Isn't that always the case? That's one possibility. The other possibility is that in days of famine, it would not be uncommon for um, vineyards particularly to be grubbed up in favour of other agricultural land to produce food. Um, but here, that is not being permitted so there is a dearth of food, there's famine, but there seems no hope. There's no possibility of getting more food. And then the fourth seal, the fourth living creature, and the fourth horse. Now in your translations of the Bible, perhaps just like mine, you've got a pale horse. Um, but actually it seems like this paleness would be of a sickly green nature. And here we have the rider death. And Hades attendant with him as he is elsewhere in this book. And they were given authority over a fourth, a quarter of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is a pretty devastating state of affairs, isn't it? This is a tribulation like no other. This is a time of great waste and worry. Now, we, we can note a couple of things. Firstly, we note that all of the things that we read of in the book of Revelation, indeed in all of the scriptures, and everything in fact that we know of in all of human history, only occurs because God either decrees that it should occur or permits that it should occur. He has a will that will either decree what he is sovereignly bringing about to, to, to happen or a will that is permitting things within this world. Now in the book of Revelation, you'll find something really, really interesting. You have to wait until chapter 21 until you hear the direct voice of God speaking and the direct hand of God acting. And it, when you get to the end of all things you hear God speaking directly saying that he is making all things new and you see him acting to wipe away tears now does that mean that everything else that is happening isn't God no God in fact is no longer withholding certain things and God is also permitting other things to be unfolded upon his earth as he brings about the culmination of all things this is difficult and it is troubling so we believe don't we in a god of love and oftentimes it's hard to reconcile the, the devastations and destructions that we read of in scriptures particularly when we look towards the end of all things and we look towards the coming of Christ Jesus and we, we find it hard to reconcile these things, hard to understand. Well, why is it that well, God will do certain things? Why is it that God will permit certain things? You're not alone in struggling with this. I don't know whether you heard recently, um, but in wrestling with the, the wording of the Lord's Prayer, um, the Pope and those around him, bless him, um, they decided that they, they want to change the words of the Lord's Prayer because they think that we've been getting it wrong all this time. Um, 
bless them. And I, I kind of know where they're coming from. The, the bit that they were struggling with is the bit of lead us not into temptation. Did you hear about this, anybody? A couple of you maybe did. Um, not many. But they wanted to change this word from lead us not into temptation into something a bit more kind of passive. But their reasoning was, how can God lead us into temptation? This seems contrary to what we understand as to be his will. This is really problematic. It's really problematic when we decide that we know about God and then start to impose our understandings of God upon the Bible. You can see how that might be a problem, eh? Um, if, I, if I said to you that, that God um, loves Nottingham Forest more than any other football club because that's what I decided and impose that upon the Bible, then, well, I'd still be right, but that's not the point. Um, it, it's really tricky to start to impose our understandings upon God. If Jesus said... This then is how you should pray to God the Father, naming him as our Father by means of the grace of Jesus Christ. That we should pray to that Father, our Father, lead us not into temptation. Then we shouldn't actually come to that text, as difficult as it might be, and say, but that's not how I understand God, so I'm going to change it. Rather, we must say, well, what does the Bible say and then let it change me. Now, I can't offer you a great explanation as to why God might lead you into temptation. Maybe he won't. Certainly, if you're praying as Jesus has invited you to pray, you're saying to God, don't. <laughs> but should he do anything in your life, then the Bible makes it plain to us that actually he is doing what he is doing because he is sovereign. Because his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Because his intent for you is not for you to be comfortable, but for you to be like him. For you to be made holy and for your life of holiness to be a good within this world. Such that others may look upon your good works and glorify your father in heaven for instance. And so we must say, God, whatever it is that you are doing in my life, I understand it to be according to your sovereign will. You know me better than I know myself. You know my end from my beginning. And I don't even know what's going to happen when I get up tomorrow. So I will submit myself to praying as you've called me to pray and living as you've called me to live. Similarly, when we approach these passages, we can't just dismiss them out of hand and say, a quarter of the earth? Surely that can't be right just because it offends us. Now, what I'm not saying is don't be offended. Do be offended. And then ask God, what is this offense? What is this trouble? What is this absolute disgust that you may sense in the face of these troubles and tribulations? What is it supposed to affect within your life? How are we meant to change and grow and develop because of seeing the potential of these things? And just for a short time, I want to consider how these things are not just a potential. They're not just to be considered as a future state or, or something that, that, that will be. But that actually the sense of tribulation is one thing that is rooted within all of scripture. And that actually the trouble uh, is, is a defining mark of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
Much of your New Testament is written, we could probably say all of your New Testament is written to people who are in trouble. When John begins the book of Revelation, he talks to those who are going to receive these words and he says, I'm your partner in the tribulation. They knew suffering. And the suffering may grow in scale. And the suffering, as we'll see in a moment or two, may have particular purpose. But to know suffering is actually a characteristic of a Christian. And if we do not know suffering within our lives, well, by all means, thank God for it. But also examine yourself. Examine yourself according to biblical Christianity and the pattern of those who have gone before us and ask, is there anything that we see within their lives, their pattern of holiness and of witness that perhaps is lacking within us? In First Peter, and we could read the whole of that letter because it is written to people who are suffering and it is largely about suffering. But just to pick up a few verses from chapter four, Peter says to those that he is speaking to in love, in verse 12 of chapter 4, 1 Peter, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Because, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. There's a few things that we might want to note in this passage. Peter describes a fiery trial it's all too possible for Christians, particularly in the culture that we're in here, to consider any amount of persecution to be um, a great tribulation. I wonder if we put it against the, the, the lens of fiery trial, uh, would some of our claimed persecutions quite stand up? I hear so much talk these days of so much that is happening in our country and of kind of people uh, being prevented from declaring the gospel in this way or that way or, or, or seeing consequence for, for, for remaining firm to various aspects of their faith here or there or there. They hear so much of these things. and Well, maybe so. But I hear less and less and less of people talking about those in our world who are losing everything for the cause of the cross. You know, I, I hear a great deal about uh, somebody who loses a position in an NHS trust and, and we should hear about these things we should pray about these things and campaign about these things but at the same time I, I don't hear about the 40 people in Burkina Faso who have lost their lives because they're Christians and I want to hold both of these things up against the test of fiery trial 
And I want to ask us, you know, what is our understanding and our consideration of genuine persecution? And when these things come upon us to test us, if we prepare ourselves, then we would do well not to get um, vastly wound up over the times that people look at us askance or say an unkind word or maybe give us the cold shoulder for the sake of the cross. These may well be the beginnings of things, maybe so. But these light momentary afflictions can't possibly compare to the eternal weight of glory. And the truth of the matter is that they don't compare to the fiery trials that many of our brothers and sisters around the world are enduring for the cause of the cross. And we do well to get a sense of perspective. That being said, God's glory can be revealed in every time and every occasion that we choose the way of holiness, of humility, and of faithfully proclaiming the gospel. Peter is plain that we shouldn't be suffering because of our own evil doing. You know, we must ask ourselves honestly, do people reject the message of the gospel because the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing? Or do they reject the message of the gospel because those who bring the message of the gospel are not all that attractive? Jesus Christ was vastly winsome. He was beautiful. And when he told people they were destroying their lives and had no hope in this life or the next of doing anything other, that they must throw themselves upon the mercy of God and flee from the coming destruction, then they still wanted to hear more from him because he was gloriously and wondrously attractive because he was full of grace and truth are we suffering for the cause of the cross or are we suffering because we're insufferable the gospel ought well to be an offense and it is rightly proclaimed for me to tell you honestly honestly that you are dead in your sin And without the life that only Christ can offer to you, you will remain dead now and for all eternity. This is a desperate situation. That is offensive. For me to tell you that there is nothing that you can do about your state before God except to throw yourself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. This is offensive. Your goodness, the Bible says, your best efforts are not even close. These things are offensive. But I have no mandate before God or before you to be offensive with those things. Not so. Let none of us suffer because we're offensive. Let none of us suffer because we're evil. But let us suffer because we are holy. And let us suffer because we're helping someone else to be holy through the gospel of Christ Jesus. And Peter He talks about entrusting our souls to a faithful creator, the one who has begun these things and will complete all these things. He talks about judgment beginning at the household of God and if it begins with us, what will the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Well, the Bible makes us plain to us and even we've started to see some of the um, opening um, salvos of this in what we read in Revelation chapter 6. And the Bible opens it up as it goes on and on and on. That much of this trouble, it is not intended for the believer. That these wraths are poured out upon the world. When Peter says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Here we see four horsemen wreaking the havoc of, of God's righteous judgment upon the world. 
This is a fearsome answer to a question that we must be invested in. If we know trouble now, then our right response is to say, yet there is much more trouble to come. How can I help my neighbor, my friend, the member of my family, those all around me, those that God has entrusted to me, how can I invite them into the way of Christ, knowing that it will be a trouble for today? Because it will be. Jesus himself said, in this world you will have trouble, John 16 verse 33, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Invite people into the way of Christ today, even though they may suffer in the today, because in doing so, you are saving them from greater suffering to come. As the wrath of God is poured out upon this world, and then his righteous judgment comes upon this world, we can't play around with the invitation that we make to people in this world Christianity in our culture is largely scorned it's not hugely well regarded and even when people are comfortably willing to allow for Christianity they see no place for it in their own lives they see no need to surrender their lives to Jesus we invite people into something that will materially affect their lives. It will turn their lives upside down. But in the receiving of such an utter upside downing of their lives, they will receive the grace of God in the time to come. And they will receive his eternity, his blessed rest. We've mentioned it already, but in 2 Corinthians 5, we can read there that we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened not that we would be unclothed but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee so we are always of good courage we know that while we are at home in the body we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith not by sight yes we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. Time doesn't permit us to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. We'll leave that for another occasion. But to think about this groaning and this longing that we, whether at home or away, make it our aim to please him. Again, returning uh, to those seals as they were opened, the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? How long? 
the very fact that we might endure trouble and suffering within this world, whether it be the simple natural facts of our bodies breaking, whether it be the, the, the natural uh, brokenness of circumstance because we live in a broken world which is passing away, or whether it be the spiritual battle that we enjoin to see the gospel advance and the people around us come to faith in Jesus Christ, whatever the suffering that we may endure, it ought to prompt to us into that kind of longing, that kind of longing to say, how long, God, before your justice? How long, God? We want to groan. All of creation is groaning, longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. Why not the believers? I, you know, when you try to think about what does it mean for creation to be groaning and longing, and I sometimes think about those tectonic plates that form the crust of our earth and how there they are, as it were, a fractured surface, and they rub up against one another, and some are, are, are crushed down beneath another, and there are earthquakes and volcanoes and tsunami, and it seems to me that these might be something of the groanings of the earth. I don't have a biblical backup for that but it's just my poetic license. But it seems to me that these might be kind of groanings on a global scale that speak to the fact that this cannot continue. And yet we believers seem content to continue, marking time, checking in, checking out, building our empires, doing what we will, There is trouble to come, such trouble. And I would rather enter into the troubles of today for the cause of holiness and of the gospel. I would rather invite another into those troubles such that we might avoid the coming onslaught. You know, I don't want to see my friends and my neighbours call upon the mountainside to collapse upon them and hide them so that they can get away from the trouble of this world. What kind of a salvation is that? That's no kind of salvation, is it? It's just frying pan and fire. It's, it's desperate that people might feel so without option. And yet in the here and the now, there is the most glorious and great option, isn't there? Are we proclaiming Christ with our lives of holiness? We take every opportunity to declare him to those around us who are in need of him. How might we be partners in the trouble? If you were to write a letter to your brother in Christ in, in Syria or in Mali or in North Korea or wherever it might be I, I don't think I could bring myself to address that letter saying your partner in the tribulation because when I consider my life there's no, there's no characteristic of that and I'm no fool maybe I don't invite trouble upon myself. Do you know, I, I put my kids to bed every night and I pray that God would protect them and bless them and keep them and make his face to shine upon them and be gracious to them. I pray for their peace and their prosperity. I pray for their health and their strength and all these kinds of things. I wouldn't pray for trouble for their lives. But above all and before all, I pray that they would be holy. 
And I pray that when my kids grow up, that their friends would have opportunity to know the Jesus of the gospel because they'll tell them. And when I pray these things, I start to look at my own life and I say, well, how about you, Greg? Come on. Just pray for another. Don't just preach to another. Are you holy? Really holy? And are you sharing the gospel? Fearlessly yet winsomely. Because I do wonder if the lack of trouble in my life is something that I ought to be concerned about. We were going to talk tonight about Daniel's mountain. But we don't have the time. So we'll talk about that another time, eh? Talk about the kingdom of God breaking out in our world holy mountain that'll be fun we'll do that another time we want to share communion this evening as we were preparing to share this evening somebody just passed to me a note uh, a sense that the Lord was saying to his church do not sleep now is the time to pray I am coming very soon I yearn for you to fast and pray together as one church. Not like the disciples who fell asleep when I asked them to pray. Now church, it is the time to pray. I was talking with somebody just the other day about some members of our church and Within our church, we make lots of opportunities for you to come and pray with one another. One of those opportunities is on a Tuesday morning at 11 o'clock in the basement of the church, one of our boiler room, sorry, not 11, 10 o'clock, and one of our boiler room prayer occasions. And the folks who come to pray there, they're very devoted to prayer. And we were talking about them and giving thanks to God for them. And I noted how recently when we had the Korean prayer missionary team I think almost all of them uh, bar one or two who, who couldn't for legitimate reasons they came and prayed those nighttime prayers um, from 10 till 12 and I, I was thrilled and it spoke to me of the fact that in that gathering they are truly devoted to pray because 10 in the morning is pretty civilized you can have a nice cup of coffee or a brew but 10 at night is not very civilized and by the time you get to midnight, it's all you can do to stay awake. But there they were, and they were praying. And many others of you besides, and God bless you if you took that opportunity. Church, will you heed the call of God? You know, I know it's a strange call to say, come and suffer. I take great comfort in the fact that it's the call of Jesus Christ who invites us to take up our cross and follow him. It's not metaphorical. It does mean die. You know, die to everything of yourself. Lose any sense that you are in charge of yourself. Utterly give up your life into the hands of God and let him be wholly in control, whatever that means. You know, it's a vivid image because it's a vivid reality. It's a strange call to come and suffer. But it's a call that changes things. It's a call that changes things. 
as we've said already, now is not the time, hear those words, it's not the time to sleep or to sleepwalk until such time as we are uh, taken to be with our God and we find ourselves in, in this blessed state and yet we suddenly think, oh, but what about what about all this trouble, all this wrath poured out upon the world? Now is no time to sleep. Fast, pray. Lives that make it their aim to please him. Holiness. Sharing the good news of life in Christ Jesus. And Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. If that's the case, I want there to be a good reason why I get in trouble. I want to really earn it. I don't want to get in trouble by accident. I want to get in trouble by design. I want to get in trouble because I've really gone out there and, you know, got some attention, pulled the tail of something, really got stuck in. I hope I'm not on my own. Would you stand with me?